Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for lovely worship today. We continue with our sermon series from the Gospel of Mark. We're heading toward Easter Sunday as we conclude that sermon series with the resurrection of our Jesus. If you've missed one of these sermons, you can go to firstamarillo.org and you can watch, listen, or print off the sermon and catch up to where we are. We find ourselves today in Mark chapter 11, the fruitless fig tree of Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 33. Our efforts to make our future secure are absolutely endless. Nothing, however, except for our faith in Christ is able to ensure our eternity. For example, while sound financial planning is a worthwhile endeavor, even the best of planners can never guarantee that our future is fixed. In fact, Helen Keller once noted, security is more superstition. It does not exist out in nature. Avoiding danger is not safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or it's nothing at all. And yet we want to find that thing in which we can trust. Things that we want to place our trust in to make us feel secure or certain about tomorrow. In fact, some families set up trust funds appropriately named because through them they set up money for future generations, attempting to make certain that those whom they love will be secure even after they're long gone. Behind financial security, moreover, sometimes we place our trust in established relationships. As long as he's there or she's here, everything's going to be okay. Or sometimes we place our eternal trust in an institution like a government, a nation, or even a church. We feel like as long as we're in their care, everything is okay about tomorrow. Unfortunately, in Jesus' day, as we will see in the passage this morning, ancient Israel had placed her trust in God's place, the temple, rather than in God himself. And the barren fig tree has long been used as a metaphor for ancient Israel turning away from God. The barren fig tree is Israel in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Micah. Lacking that dynamic, meaningful relationship with God himself, temple Judaism in that day had placed confidence in God's house, in the structure, in the building, and in the busyness itself. And so, decades away from this text, in A.D. 70, when the temple crumbles to shambles, those who only had faith in God's house and not in God didn't know what to do. They had lost the foundation of their faith. They had lost 
more than a religious symbol. They had lost their atonement. They had lost the sacrificial system, the way to sacrifice the animals and be made right with God. They had lost everything because their faith was in a place and the busyness of the place and not in the God of the place. What I want you to see this morning, perhaps I'm reading the text for you with new eyes. I want you to see that Jesus acts out a parable. And the cursing of the fig tree is a clear signal that God has judged ancient Israel. More specifically, God has judged the present state of the temple. For following the ultimate and only sacrifice of the true Lamb of God on the cross... God's people could now bypass the cult system of the temple. Ancient Israel had mistakenly placed so much trust in the temple system that it failed to recognize the Messiah of the temple when he arrived. Well, let's outline this passage in a few portions. First of all, verses 12 through 14, which James read to us, the fruitless fig tree. 12 through 14, the fruitless fig tree fig tree. We've already talked about Mark's sandwich style, how he starts with one story, that's the bread, and then he goes to a second story, that's the spread, and then he comes back to the first story again, the bread. Bread, spread, bread, two stories, beginning of story, switching to story two, coming back to story one, two stories, but chapter three, chapter five, and now we see, yes, another time, that when we have a mark and sandwich, we have two stories, but only one meaning. The two stories have to be read through each other, and that's why Mark has made his sandwich for us. Well, he begins by telling a story about a fruitless fig tree. And then he suddenly, in fast fashion, changes the page and talks about Jesus driving out the money changers and the sellers of doves and the temple. And then he comes back again to the withering fig tree for the final piece of bread. We see, therefore, that the fruitless fig tree read along with Jesus' action in the temple. They are read together. And we see forthcoming not only the destruction of the fig tree, but the prophecy of the destruction of the temple itself. Now, this story bothers some people because everywhere else in Mark's gospel, we have miracles of restoration. Withered hands are made to work again, and the blind are able to see. Even the dead, Jairus' daughter is raised, and demons are are cast out into the pigs. So every other miracle story in Mark, Jesus revives something or restores something or renews something. But in this story, unlike all the other miracles, he curses something. He curses a fig tree that is fruitless. Well, here's the questions that come to the story. Why does Jesus curse the fig tree? And how does his cursing the fig tree relate to his action in the temple? It's a sandwich. You have to read it together. And how does this sandwich prepare us for the passion, the crucifixion, and resurrection 
of Jesus. Well, now some people are bothered by the fact that he curses a fig tree when it's not the season for figs. He goes up, it's mid-April, it's before the Passover, and he sees the fig tree with a lot of leaves, and the season for figs is June. And Jesus sees the leaves, and Jesus is hungry, but there is no fruit, there are only leaves. It is a false foliage advertising, no figs, no fruit. It's not the season for figs. He uses this for construction. Look at verse 13. He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, we've looked at it before, but as you go throughout the gospel of Mark, chapter 1, chapter 5, chapter 7, two times, when we have this for construction in Mark, it means he's not going to quote an Old Testament passage, but he's going to allude to an Old Testament passage. I think he's alluding to Micah 7. Here the the prophet compares the absence of righteousness in Israel to a vineyard with no figs. In fact, Micah 7, 1 says, I crave a fig. Jesus approaches the leafy tree. It's not the season, allusion to the Old Testament. I crave a fig. Out of season, therefore, seems to me to have more to do with Israel's barren spiritual condition than the horticultural cycle of the tree itself. In fact, in Ezekiel 47, we read that when the Messiah comes, that the fruit trees and the precincts of the temple will bear fruit, not just for a season, but they will continuously bear fruit, for the kingdom is here and the Messiah has arrived. And isn't that our case in this passage? The kingdom has arrived, and Jesus is the Messiah, and therefore the fig trees around the temple ought to always, forever, bear fruit. But this fig tree does not. The curse is a a double negative in the Greek. Look at verse 14. It's literally translated this way. May no one eat fruit from you no longer forever. May no one eat fruit from you no longer forever forever. It heightens the harshness of the words of Jesus. Make no mistake, unlike the miracles of restitution, renewal, the fig tree is cursed. Now we move from the bread to the spread. The second section is verses 15 through 19, Jesus's bold action in the temple. Jesus's bold action in the temple. In his sandwich fashion, he moves effortlessly from the fig tree now over to the temple. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking to destroy him. Well, there's your connection with the passion. At this moment, when he takes action against the temple, 
They began seeking to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For all the multitudes were astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they would go out of the city. In this passage, Jesus' disciples are spending the night in Bethany and coming to Jerusalem by daytime. The actions, verse 12, happen the next day. And Jesus enters with bold moves when he arrives to the temple. He drives out those who are buying and selling. He overturns the tables of those who are running the exchange of the currencies. And those who are selling the sacrificial doves, he makes them stops. And no one can bring goods throughout the temple. Now, I think the symbol is larger than perhaps you've heard from others. I don't think it's just a mere protest against the exploitation of the worshipers who come from other currencies and, well, they've, they've gone up on the exchange rate because once you're in the temple, you need the right currency to offer for the temple tax. And so they, they kind of bumped up, inflated the currency exchange. I think it's more than that. That, that's the kind of view, it's like buying popcorn. Where is popcorn most expensive? Not at Sam's Club. It's most expensive in the movie theater because you can't get out and run and buy a bag that big for $2 at Sam's. They sell you a box that big for $795 and you make <laughs> monthly payments. That's not what's going on here. It's not an exploitation of you're trapped at the place. There may be some of that, but it's so much bigger than that. It is not just an attempt to say, this is the court of Gentiles, and so you got to get all the flea market stuff out of here so the Gentiles can worship. That's in here too, but I still think it is much bigger than that. What I think we have here in the fig tree is an acted parable, and in this we have a prophetic performance by Jesus. In fact, he is so bold to say in Matthew 12 that now with my arrival, one greater than the temple. He's greater than the temple. He can turn over the temple has arrived. The temple's ritual sacrifices were established by God, but they were never meant to be anything more than a foreshadowing of the ultimate Lamb of God, 1045 we read last week, who is the true ransom for many. So Jesus' actions, therefore, are symbolic of the forthcoming destruction of the Herodian temple and its replacement by the presence of the Messiah who is greater than the temple itself. Now, one's interpretation sometimes hinges on these words at the end of verse 17. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for many nations, but you have made it a robber's den. You have made it a den of robbers. Now, some say, well, look at that. It was a den of robbers. It was a place that they were exploiting and, and charging too much for the animals, and they had inflated the prices. And so he accuses them of creating the temple into a den of robbers. But I think it's bigger than that. I think it's much more than a statement against the, the money grubbers in the temple, for the crowd was astonished, amazed at what he had to say. And when he says it, 
while the authorities are ready to kill him. No, I think Den of Robbers comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. You see, these robbers are not just swindlers. They are bigger than that. They are bandits. And bandits don't do any robbing in their own den. They go out and they pilfer and they rob, and they come back to their robber's den as a place of false security. They commit the crimes out and about, and they return and hide in the robber's den, their place of security and refuge. Well, like robbers, possessing a false sense of security once they make it safely back after the heist to their den, those in ancient Israel had, he tells us in, in Mark 12, they were robbing the widows' houses. They were doing, breaking the law. They were acting like robbers out and about in the community, and they thought it was all okay. As long as they came back to the place of security, the robbers' den, and they made their sacrifices. And they paid their temple taxes. And, well, they were busy in the temple. Then that made them feel okay about all their unrighteousness all week long. And Jesus arrives prophetically acting out God's rejection of the temple cult and his coming destruction. It sets us up as it continues to move. In fact, look over at chapter 13. If you think I'm off base, look over at chapter, chapter 13. Look where he's leading you. And he was going out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. There he, get, he sets Jesus up. He lobs the volleyball. Look at this temple, man. Wow, isn't this beautiful? This is great construction. And Jesus says, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. He's moving us towards an understanding that one greater than the temple has arrived and temple abuse and faith in a place, security in a den of robbers is no longer acceptable. And then you remember during his trial in chapter 15, what do they accuse Jesus of? Being against the temple, the accusation that comes before us. Unfortunately, in Jesus' day, the temple had become a nationalistic symbol. But notice back to chapter 11 again, it was supposed to be a house of prayer, not just for ancient Israel, but for all nations. And you remember when Jesus was crucified? The temple veil splits. It is open. It is done from top to bottom. And a Gentile confesses, surely this was the Son of God. When Jesus is crucified, the Holy of Holies, the veil rips open. And what was to be a house of prayer for all nations is fulfilled as a Gentile declares, oh, man, we missed it. This was the Son of God. Understand then, will, will you with me in this mark and sandwich the, the full implication that ancient Israel and we cannot grasp to a holy place unless we also grasp a holy God. Here's a, a third section of this passage. That is mountains will be moved, verses 20 through 26. 
mountains will be moved. Look at verse 20. And as they were passing by, in the morning they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said, And Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to, I want you to look at the definitive article, this mountain. Whoever says not to a mountain, but whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast in the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things which you pray and ask and believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Okay, we're making our sandwich now. Stay with me. We had the bread, the fruitless fig tree. We went to the spread, turning over the tables in the temple and making them so mad they're ready to kill Jesus. Now we come back to bread number two. We're back to the, the fig tree. They're leaving Jerusalem. Remember Mark told you earlier that when he had the confrontation with the leafy fig tree that was fruitless, the disciples heard him curse it. And now Peter said, well, look, 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 you cursed it. And from the roots up, the fig tree has died. They don't, they don't miss what's happened. And so Jesus uses the barrenness of the fig tree, to equate it with the barrenness of ancient Israel's confidence in the temple system, which will also, because of its barrenness, be destroyed. We're reminded by these words of the Jobian words when it says God moves mountains without their knowing it, and he overturns them in his anger, and he shakes the earth from its place and makes the pillars tremble. Now, where are they standing when Jesus says this mountain? They're standing right there leaving Jerusalem. You see Mount Zion. You see the, the Temple Mount. And he says, if you say to this mountain. You've got to read the story in the context. He's just cursed the temple of the mountain. He's standing there in the shadow of the mountain. And he uses the definitive this. If you say this mountain will be taken up and cast in the sea. If you believe, it will be granted to you. And when you pray, if you have anything against your brother, if you have anything against your brother, forgive. So God also will forgive you. The temple was thought of as a place where if one could be in the den of robbers, one's prayers would be heard but now Jesus says that one greater than the temple has arrived. The way to get your prayers heard is not by standing in a defunct temple system, but rather the way to have your prayers heard is to have your heart full of forgiveness when you pray. That's harder, isn't it? It's easier to stand in the temple and pray and know God will hear. It's harder for me to say, whom I angry at? And what is hindering my prayers? And whom am I refusing to forgive? Inhibiting God's forgiveness of me. I want you to notice, don't, don't miss it. 
In verse 26, but if you do not forgive, neither your father, where is God? Not in the temple. Your father who is in heaven. In fact, had Solomon himself not said at the original temple, at the dedication, we've made this house, but God is too big. This house will never contain him. God's not like a rabbit's foot. Can't put him in a room, stick him in your pocket. It is the God of heaven who's bigger than the temple. Well, the final section, verses 27 through 33, questioning the authority of Jesus. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple, verse 27. The chief priests and scribes and elders came to him, and they said, By what authority are you doing these things? In other words, who made you in charge of the temple? What have right? You're not, you don't have any official status, and you're, well, you're, you're vandalizing an official place. How is it you're doing this, they asked. It was customary for rabbis to answer a question with a question. So Jesus says, well, I'll ask you a question. And when you answer my question, then I'll answer yours. Of course, the answer to their question was, I'm greater than the temple. I can do what I want to. He says, he asks them the question as he poses it to them. What about baptism? Look at verse 30. Was a baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now, it's checkmate time with Jesus. I'll tell you my authority by which I overturned the tables in the temple if you'll tell me about the baptism of John. Now, why did that cause a checkmate? Because John also pointed his finger against the abusive temple system and called people out to the Jordan River away from the business of the temple for baptism of repentance. And if they say that God was behind John's baptism, then why didn't they join him? And why weren't they baptized, these religious authorities? And why didn't they accept Jesus, who comes proclaimed by John as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? But if they say that John's baptism is from Beelzebub or from men or any authority other than God, then the people who love John and think he's a true prophet and the people who love Jesus now and think he's a true prophet why, the multitudes will turn against the authorities of the temple. And so the Sanhedrin authorities decide, look at verse 33, we do not know. Checkmate. I can't answer that one. They were so dedicated to the busy activity of the temple. They were like a fig tree with a bunch of leaves and no fruit. Here's what we learned quickly this morning. Jesus has no tolerance for fruitlessness. Zero. We are not called to be leafy Christians. We're called to be fruit producers. 
You've heard the old story so often repeated about the beautiful cathedral in Europe. They were touring it and how each stone was made and going through how many years it took to make it and the wonderful worship of days gone by. They were going through all that beautiful edifice and the outside structure. And someone raised their hand in the midst of the tour when it came time for questions and said, it's a beautiful building and the acoustics are wonderful. But let me just ask you, has anybody been saved in here lately? It was thought a question of very poor taste, probably because the answer was no. Leaves don't get it. Jesus wants fruit. Secondly, Jesus is the only ransom for many, and no other action is needed for our salvation. We can't continue like ancient Israel to think we need to do something to save ourselves, to help God. Our salvation is found in the act of God in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Thirdly, we must never allow our church, our holy space, to become corrupted by the politics of power. Those steeped in temple Judaism were more interested in keeping their privileged positions of power than they were welcoming the Messiah who had the power to create the cosmos. They missed it. We must never turn to power politics to promote places of power and position. We must welcome the Messiah. And finally... And I find the most difficult of all is that the key to effective prayers is found in having a forgiving heart. That the key to having God hear our prayers, Jesus said it, not me. If you want to have your prayers heard, you get rid of the hate, the envy, the revenge, the anger jealousy, then your heart's clear, then your prayers are heard. Let us pray. Oh God, what a complex passage. It can be read so many ways, and perhaps the way we read it this morning is a new way for many folks. Father, May we never be so busy about church that we miss the Christ of the church. May we never place our security in a place. Our security is in the person of Jesus, crucified and resurrected. Maybe there's someone here this morning who needs to come and say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I want to claim his salvation today. Maybe there are others who would come and be a part of this great fellowship, this great church. I pray they'd be obedient to you should you call. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.